0: Welcome back to the Hemingway this podcast for Epilogue One, Chapter Four. What is your interpretation of Tolstoy's criticism of Alexander? Kara Kikar says, It's amazing to me that Tolstoy is arguing that the world is inextricable except for a higher power, and yet he sits on the verge of the greatest scientific and technological revolution in the history of humanity. Remember, Tolstoy didn't have germ theory mentions ether here, not just for style, but because that is actually what people thought the sky outside the planet consisted of. I see in these arguments a deist argument we might now call God of Gaps, i.e. anything we don't understand, God did it. Well, maybe it's worth trying to understand beyond making arguments that everyone was just acting as they were meant to be, based on on their place in the natural order of things. Maybe the quest to understand is worthwhile, even if it leads to someone making outsized claims or simplifications. The existence of a lot of wrong opinions opens the possibility of a right opinion emerging. Stop trying to shut down discourse and give us our characters back. Hmm. I've heard of that old God of Gaps thing, but more in relation to, like, the ancient... Greek gods and the Roman gods and stuff like that, where it was like anything they didn't really understand, or a force that seemed like beyond our power to um, to understand or to control that power, was attributed to gods. So there was like a god of thunder, for example, um, or the god of, I don't know, like the ocean sun god, moon god, all this kind of stuff things that we didn't really get but also things that were beyond like there's things that we can exert power onto and then there's things that happen to us uh, and it was interesting that there's like that's why there's like the god of like revenge and the god of love and these kinds of things where that feeling, it doesn't really feel like a, a feeling that you have you know, it feels like a f- thing that happens to you. You can't really control that feeling. It overwhelms you. It doesn't come from inside out. It seems like pushed upon you, and that was why they had gods of those things. Um, anyway, it's a bit of a, a sidetrack, but I have heard of that god of gaps. Like, anything you can't really explain, they just put it down to god. But not really in the context of, like, Christian god, so that's interesting. I suppose, actually, I probably have, where they just sort of say it's God's will. Anything they can't explain, you know, that's just the way God wants it. Everyone's heard that a billion times. Oh, speaking of God, um, I got a message from, I think it was from Brett Peterson, saying he's uh, inviting me to join uh, another reading subreddit called A Year of the Bible. I think it might actually just be A Year, a year of Bible if you are interested in walking through the Bible that could be a cool project step by step unraveling all the little riddles uh, it's not for me I don't really care for those riddles I just see it as a silly sort of poorly written poem <laughs> um, I don't really find it as mysterious as some do I just think it's just a book written to try to be mysterious uh, but if you are interested in getting into that, there's a there's a probably a, a pretty cool um, forum through which to approach the Bible. We've also opened up voting for what we'll be reading next over on the Hemingway list. So go and um, jump on the Hemingway list subreddit, find the post uh, for the vote for what's next, the poll. Christopher Flea says, This feels great finally being here. I started reading War and Peace at the end of September with the aim to finish by the end of the month. I've been reading all the comments from previous years and gradually catching up with this year's discussions. I have been so up and down with this book. Some parts I will go back and read again because of how amazing their writing and the story is. Other parts, mainly similar chapters to the last few, I haven't understood what I'm reading and not gone back to read it again. To try to make sense of it, I'm not great at reading in general, but some of the war analogies and descriptions just go in one ear and out the other. I did, however, really enjoy the last chapter's viewpoints of a bee and its purpose. Well, I'm glad you enjoyed the bee metaphor, and well done catching up. You say you're not a very good reader, but you've read the whole book since September. is pretty good. Fast, at least. Twisted Every Way says, The bees are back. This was a much better bee metaphor than before. <laughs> I'm um. <laughs> just getting in my head like a ranking of bee metaphors. I do agree it was a better bee metaphor, but I'm still just not that keen on bee metaphors, I guess. Warren Kovoffi says, I found it odd that Tolstoy describes the workings of bees as more complex than just what one person observes, but he seems to sum up Alexander and Napoleon's actions as something simple. Good point. I think he's just running his mouth at this point, you know. He's got something to say, and he's just off there talking crap. Um, you say enough stuff, eventually you'll get something right. I just feel like that's Tolstoy's approach here. Chapter 5 goes like this. Natasha's wedding to Bezukhov, which took place in 1813, was the last happy event in the family of the old Rostovs. Count Ilya Rostov died that same year, and as always happens after the father's death, the family group broke up. The events of the previous year, the burning of Moscow and the flight from it, the death of Prince Andrei, Natasha's despair, Petya's death and the old countess's grief fell blow after blow on the old count's head. He seemed to be unable to understand the meaning of all these events and bowed his old head in a spiritual sense as if expecting and inviting further blows which would finish him, he seemed now frightened and distraught and now unnaturally animated and enterprising. The arguments for Natasha's marriage occupied him for a while. He ordered dinners and suppers and obviously tried to appear cheerful, but his cheerfulness was not infectious as it used to be. On the contrary, it evoked the compassion of those who knew and liked him. When Pierre and his wife had left, he grew very quiet and began to complain of depression A few days later, he fell ill and took to his bed. He realized from the first that that he would not get up again, despite the doctor's encouragement. The Countess passed a fortnight in an armchair by his pillow without undressing. Every time she gave him his medicine, he sobbed and silently kissed her hand. On his last day, sobbing, he asked her and his absent son to forgive him for having dissipated their property that being the chief fault of which he was conscious. After receiving communion and unction, he quietly died, and next day a throng of acquaintances who came to pay their last respects to the deceased filled the house rented by the Rostovs. All these acquaintances who had so often dined and danced at his house and had so often laughed at him, now said, with a common feeling of self-reproach and emotion, as if justifying themselves, well, Whatever he may have been, he was a most worthy man. You don't meet such men nowadays, and which of us has not weakness of his own? It was just when the Count's affairs had become so involved that it was impossible to say what would happen if he lived another year that he unexpectedly died. Nicholas was with the Russian army in Paris when the news of his father's death reached him. He at once resigned his commission, and without waiting for it to be accepted, took leave of absence and went to Moscow. The state of the Count's affairs became quite obvious a month after his death, surprising everyone by the immense total of small debts, the existence of which no one had suspected. The debts amounted to double the value of the property. Friends and relations advised Nicholas to decline the inheritance, but he regarded such a refusal as a slur on his father's memory, which he held sacred, and therefore would not hear of refusing and accepted the inheritance together with the obligation to pay the debts. The creditors who had so long been silent, restrained by a vague but powerful influence, exerted on them while he lived by the Count's careless good nature, all proceeded to enforce their claims at once. As always happens, in such cases, rivalry sprang up as to which should get paid first, and those who, like Metenka, held promissory notes, given them as presents, now became the most exacting of the creditors. Nicholas was allowed no respite and no peace, and those who had seemed to pity the old man, the cause of their losses, if they were losses, now remorselessly pursued their young heir, heir sorry, who had voluntarily undertaken the debts, and was obviously not guilty of contracting them. Not one of the plans Nicholas tried succeeded. The estate was sold by auction for half its value, and half the debts still remained unpaid. Nicholas accepted 30,000 rubles offered him by his brother-in-law Bezukhov to pay off debts he regarded as genuinely due for value received, and to avoid being imprisoned for the remainder. As the creditors threatened, he re-entered the government service. He could not rejoin the army, where he would have been made colonel at the next vacancy, for his mother now clung to him as her one hold on life, and so despite his reluctance to remain in Moscow among people who had known him before, and despite his abhorrence of the civil service, he accepted a post in Moscow in that service, doffed the uniform of which he was so fond, and moved with his mother and Sonia to a small house on the Sivetsk Sivstevazok. Natasha and Pierre were living in Petersburg at the time and had no clear idea of Nicholas's circumstances. Having borrowed money from his brother-in-law, Nicholas tried to hide his wretched condition from him. His position was the more difficult because, with his salary of twelve hundred roubles, he had not one. Sorry, he had not only to keep himself, his mother, and Sonia, but had to shield his mother from knowledge of their poverty. The Countess could not conceive of life without the luxurious conditions she had been used to from childhood, and unable to realise how hard it was for her son, kept demanding now a carriage, which they did not keep, to send for a friend, now some expensive article of food for herself, or wine for her son, or money to buy a present as a surprise for Natasha or Sonya, or for Nicholas himself. Sonya kept house, attended on her aunt, read to her, put up with her whims and secret ill will, and helped Nicholas to conceal their poverty from the old Countess. Nicholas felt himself irredeemably indebted to Sonya for all she was doing for his mother and greatly admired her patience and devotion, but tried to keep aloof from her. He seemed in his heart to reproach her for being too perfect, and because there was nothing to reproach her with, she had all that people are valued for, but little that could have made him love her. He felt that the more he valued her, the less he loved her. He had taken her at her word when she wrote, giving him his freedom, and now behaved as if all that had passed between them had been long forgotten and could never in any case be renewed. Nicholas's position became worse and worse. The idea of putting something aside out of his salary proved a dream. Not only did he not save anything, but to comply with his mother's demands, he even incurred some small debts. He could see no way out of this situation. The idea of marrying some rich woman, which was suggested to him by his female relations, was repugnant to him. The only, the other way out, his mother's death, never entered his head. He wished for nothing and hoped for nothing, and deep in his heart experienced a gloomy and stern satisfaction in an uncomplaining endurance of his position. He tried to avoid his old acquaintances with their commiseration and offensive offers of assistance. He avoided it all distraction and recreation, and even at home did nothing but play cards with his mother, pace silently up and down the room, and smoke one pipe after another. He seemed carefully to cherish within himself the gloomy mood which which alone enabled him to endure his position. Alright, there we go. Another chapter. Here's Nicholas again. Good to see from him, although he's not doing too well. Poor old Count Rostov has kicked the bucket. That's very sad. I like Count Rostov. And what an. Oh man, I remember this from the last time I read this years ago. The mother just not understanding that he doesn't have money and just demanding bottles of wine and stuff is so irritating. It's so irritating. You know, a silly old doofus. Who's lived in luxury for you know sixty years or whatever, however old they are, and just can't um, comprehend not being rich, not being in luxury. Just can't, just can't wrap their head around that. It's so, oh, I don't know. I hate that. <laughs> really irritating. Um. Anyway, we'll talk about it tomorrow. Thanks for listening. See you then.